Just for those of you who are online with us right now, either live at this moment or later on uh, during our recording, we're really trying to improve that experience. And so if you want to join with us in a whole variety of ways, but particularly in making a response to God, then we're going to begin developing that whole capacity here uh, at Apex. And so there is a button uh, if you're uh, joining us on the, the website where you can respond and uh, give us a sense of what it is that God is saying to you. And as, um, as you respond to God in that way, we'll try to respond to you also. The church has, of course, a long and illustrious history with the Bible. And um, the, the church as a collective group down through the centuries has had many ways of approaching God's Word. But one, one of the ways that has really the greatest provenance, meaning it has the longest and most illustrious history, is something that is rarely spoken of in Protestant circles, circles like the one that we're in right now. It's called the Lectio Divina. It's Latin for divine reading. And it's been used when the church was a single entity before first the Roman and the Orthodox Church separated in the early centuries of the church's history. It's been used by the Western Church down through the centuries before the Reformation. And then after the Reformation, when, of course, the church was divided into the different groups that we see now multiplying around the world, it has been used with a different kind of name and with different kinds of expressions. But nevertheless, it's the same idea. It's the same understanding. And what it is, is that you read the Bible, you become familiar with the narrative, and then you choose to enter the narrative as one of the characters. You place yourself in the text so that as you read the text, as you rehearse the text, as you remember the text, you live the text as a character within the story. And this, this method of biblical engagement has, has been one of the richest and, and most productive ways that Christians down through the centuries have approached the Word of God. And today, because of the character of the text that we're looking at, because it is a narrative, we're going to do the same thing. I'm going to, I'm going to suggest to you that we take the character of the blind man. I'll introduce some external observations and references to help us place ourselves within the story. We'll see the story from the perspective of other people, of course. But today, we're going to attempt, very much as if we were engaged in watching a movie. I watched that, that Greyhound uh, movie with uh, Tom Hanks on Friday night. What an amazing thing that is. And by the way, when you watch that movie, young people, that's why they're called the greatest generation. 
It's an incredible movie of a captain of one of the ships that, that, that guided and conducted to safety and to help all of the convoys across the North Atlantic during the Second World War, seeking to escape and to uh, defend them from the wolf packs of submarines. An incredible story and something that gives us insight into the foundations on which this nation is built. When I watch that movie, I place myself in the character of Tom Hanks and found myself deeply connected with his emotions and, and with his perspective. And even as he bowed to pray at the end of the day, I found myself really feeling what it was that, that perhaps he as an actor, and what a brilliant actor he is, he as an actor was seeking to help me understand about this greatest of generations. Well, today, let's try and do the same thing. Let's look at this passage. We'll read it through once. And then we'll, we'll have a go at Lectio Divina. We're reading from Luke chapter 18 and verse 35. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Let's say that Jerusalem is over here. And let's take the points on the compass and kind of orient ourselves within the text. Behind us, to the north, I know it's not the north for us here in Dayton, but to the north there is Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, the land, that prosperous and, and productive land of the round, as it was called, the Galilee, harbored on the banks of that beautiful lake, still to this day one of the most delightful places to visit. Jesus has traveled from his home down toward the south. And rather than going directly across land, he's followed the way of the pilgrims. He's skirted the edge of the Lake of Galilee. He's come to the point at which the Lake of Galilee flows forth in the continuation of the River Jordan and has followed the track and the trace of the Jordan south. As Jesus has come south, I've no doubt that he's thinking about his friend and relative, John the Baptist. You see, 
We're told by the gospel writers that Jesus began his ministry when John was imprisoned. And when John was murdered in prison, beheaded in prison, Jesus withdrew from his work and ministry in Galilee, and from that point on, began to set his face towards Jerusalem. And so the ministry of Jesus is framed by the imprisonment of John, his dear friend, his relative. And as he walks south, he's walking towards the very place where John the Baptist identified him publicly for the first time. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This was the very place where John was baptizing the people, where Jesus took over the call to baptize. This was the very place where the troops, the soldiers, the security forces of Herod of Galilee came and captured John and imprisoned him in a prison just to the south and east of where Jesus was headed. The Fort Macarus, the winter palace of Herod, where he would welcome all of his noble guests, where they would have winter parties, times of reverie, right there in the desert by the Dead Sea was the fort where John was imprisoned and finally killed. No doubt that cast a long shadow on the heart of Jesus. And perhaps it was in reflecting on that that, that Jesus introduces this, this chronicle, this, this period, this narrative with, with testimony of what it is that's going to happen in Jerusalem. Again, he says, I'm going to Jerusalem with you, and they're going to imprison me, and they're going to flog me, and they're going to spit on me, and they're going to kill me. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again. And Luke tells us, as the other gospel writers also agree, the disciples simply didn't understand what Jesus meant. As Jesus walked down this Via Maritina, the, the great north-south road that, that navigated the path along the side of the Dead Sea by the great communities of Qumran and the Essenes, the, the ascetic people who lived in the desert reading scripture all day, singing songs to Yahweh and waiting for the return of the Messiah. As Jesus made his way south on the, on the Via Maritima, Right there at the crossroads where the east-west road that would lead to Jerusalem and the north-south road that went from Egypt to Lebanon, right there where John addressed the crowds, was the place of one of the most ancient settlements on planet earth. There are few places anywhere, anywhere on the, on the planet that have a recorded settlement as old, as old Jericho. 
In the time of Jesus, old Jericho was barely inhabited. It was the place, of course, of, of Joshua marching around the walls and seeing them fall. It was the place of ancient settlement and civilization. It was the place where perhaps the oldest example of cultivated wheat was found. Because here, in the midst of really one of the lowest points on the planet, it's so far below sea level that it is the lowest place on the planet right here. There are so many springs and, and so much life that it's given, given birth to this name of the City of Palms, the place where, where palm trees proliferate in great numbers. And there, the ancient city of Jericho is founded and settled. But of course, in the time of Jesus, old Jericho had fallen largely into disrepair and ruin. And the new Jericho, built by Herod the Great, built around his winter palace, at the, at the very beginning of, of, of Wadi Kelt, on the great road to Jerusalem, this great gouge through the earth. Herod brought water from a cave way up at the, at the head of that enormous wadi and brought it all the way down the sides of the wadi in a huge engineering feat that conducted the water from its source to the palace and beyond. And there Herod created pools and places to swim and relax. He was such an evil man, Herod the Great, that, that, that he produced in his time such a fear and hatred. In one of those pools, he drowned his own adult son because he offended him. And around that palace, the new city of, Jeru of, of Jericho was built. Now, Luke here says, as Jesus was approaching Jericho, and Matthew says, as Jesus was leaving Jericho. All of the three synoptic gospel writers have this story. Different gospel writers give us different insights. Mark tells us that the man is called Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. Matthew tells us that he's one of two blind men who are healed at the time. These men are right between the old and the new. And they're waiting for something to happen. I wonder today, as you consider the life and the journey of the blind man, are you between the old and the new? Here's a blind man. He's, he's caught between what was and what will be. And the only thing that can change his place, change his condition, change his life 
is to hear that Jesus is passing from the old to the new. Do you have an old life? Do you have a new life? Do you have a, an old way of thinking? Do you have an old way of behaving? Do you have an old way of relating in your marriage that you, that you don't want to be part of anymore? But you're not quite into the new way of thinking and the new way of behaving and the, the new way of connecting. And you're caught between the two. And how? How would you ever be able to fully embrace the new? Well, today, Jesus is passing by. Jesus said, whenever two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there. There's at least two or three. Jesus is most certainly here. He never fails in his promise. And of course, he's present in the life of every believer. But there is a special sense in which Jesus wants us to understand and identify that his presence is available in the midst of God's worshiping people. And so here today... As we're caught between the old and the new, Jesus, just for a moment, just for a season, just for this time, is passing by. The blind man with his friend hears the commotion, how well Jason portrayed that for us. There's a commotion. He's, he's probably had this place set aside every day. He's probably had to physically force other beggars from his place. We know what it's like being part of the underclass because we've observed it and seen it. Maybe we've even ministered to people who are in that place. This is his place. And in his place, he has some level of respect. He has some level of authority. He has some level, some capacity to make decisions that influence his life all the time. Being part of the underclass, the people around him define and dictate to him. And they try to do it again. Those who are leading the way, probably the disciples, Tell him to be quiet because he's heard that Jesus is coming and he can't do anything other than ask for mercy. Mercy, Jesus. Mercy. Will you give me mercy? Think of what it is that the man is asking for. There he is lying by the road. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. You see, mercy 
is found so often in the Old Testament scriptures that we know exactly what it means in the mind of the blind man and of Jesus. Mercy is the removal of shame, the removal of obstacles to blessing, the removal of sin toward forgiveness. It is only offered and only expressed and and only expected within the covenant relationship that God has given his people. And so the people of God call out to God for mercy knowing that outside of the covenant they have no right to expect mercy. And that inside the covenant, even though mercy is guaranteed, they feel like they have to ask in a way that suggests at least a level of respect to the one to whom they're asking. What is he saying? He's heard that Jesus is Messiah. He is the son of David. He is the one who's come to restore the people of God. And as such, he is the representative of God. As the Psalms say, he is the Son, the Son of God. Now, of course, the blind man, along with all of the other people, had no real sense of what that meant in a deeper theological, in a deeper theological sense, but but he knew that this man was the representative of God, and therefore he could ask him for mercy. He'd lived his whole life. He'd lived in this condition. He'd lived with this blindness that set him apart from everyone. In the darkness of his life, looking for compassion and connection, he was blamed for his condition. There is no question about the way that the people of that time understood the conditions that people experienced. The simple explanation was this, that the man had caused his own blindness by his own sin. And if it was not him, it was his parents who did it. His life was covered with shame. His life was covered with guilt. His life was such that that people would not look at him and they expected him never to look at them. And so it was only with a bowed head and an an extended hand that he would ever ask for help. This is the condition of the blind man. Perhaps, perhaps he, he found help and, and encouragement and succor amongst those of his own community. But being blind means that you're even alienated there. People around him living in the underclass would take advantage of his blindness. Steal the money that people had given to him. 
make him feel even more on the edge. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Take this away. He won't stop screaming. He won't stop shouting. He shouts it all the more. And as Jesus is passing by, and wow, aren't we thankful that Jesus is passing by? Jesus pauses because he hears the cry for mercy on every occasion. Are you calling out for God to take something away? Are you calling out for mercy today? Jesus will never fail to hear a cry for mercy. He pauses. He calls for the man. The man, his spirit lifts. I don't know whether anyone helped him, but, but the scriptures say that he was brought to Jesus probably with little respect, with little consideration. After all, he's lesser than everyone else. And he's brought to Jesus. Now he began by asking for something to be taken away, the curse. The longing of his heart had been articulated in his prayer. But you see, the Christian faith is not just about subtraction. It's about more than subtraction. When you come to Jesus, what are you going to ask for? Only subtraction? Or are you going to ask for addition? The Christian faith is not just about subtraction. The Christian faith is also about addition. God wants to add something to your life. On the day of Pentecost, the crowd hear the word of Peter, the definitive sermon of the Christian church, because it's the first one. And they hear the words of Peter preached to them with power, with passion. And they hear the word and they say, brothers, what must we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized for subtraction and addition. Acts 2.38 Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. They will be taken away. Why? Because the work has been done the work is final the work is complete the work is universally Effective. 
There's never been a person that's asked for forgiveness who did not get it. Forgiveness is an issue of subtraction because it's taking away the guilt. It's taking away the separation. It's taking away the alienation. It's taking away. It's forgiven. And then Peter says, Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is for you and your children. The man, the blind man has stumbled to to the presence of Jesus. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want Jesus to do? I remember the day when we had the leader of the Nigerian revival in our church in England. I'd spent some time with him and his people. I'd seen hundreds of thousands of people come for a whole night of prayer. It had transformed the way that I understood the role of thanksgiving in the life of a Christian. And I respectfully asked that if ever there was a possibility that he would come to this little town called Sheffield in England, that maybe he would come. He was, after all, responsible for 14 million people across the revival. And he preached on the story of blind Bartimaeus. And he said this, He said, I've seen many, many miracles. I've seen people healed. I've seen the blind see. I've seen the dead raised. But this is something I've noticed on every occasion. It's only people who need a miracle who get a miracle. And so if you want a miracle... You have to be prepared to need a miracle. And then he went through a very simple 10-point sermon that was enormously transformative for us as a church, Dr. Enoch Adeboya. What do you need God to do? One of our problems in the West is that we've been so distanced from any sense of need that even in our physical maladies and, and, and relational conditions, we, we have found ways to, to help ourselves with our own disposition of, of, of self-determination, which of course is so present in the American psyche. We have, we have found ways to not need God. And even here, in the midst of a pandemic, we think that maybe it's by our efforts that we can reverse the virus. And so little, and so rarely, do we hear the cry for mercy 
and the request for grace. So rarely do we, do we hear the call to subtract from our lives the things that need to be removed and add to our lives the things that need to be added. What do you want me to add to your life? Says Jesus. The blind man, I'm sure, is surprised by the question. But the cry of his heart can't be silenced any more than the voice that was calling out in the midst of the crowd. Lord, I want to see. Jesus says, then you don't need me anymore. Do you notice that? Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. What? You mean to say that this had been available all along? My faith is healed? I didn't need you to heal me? Well, it's unequivocal. Jesus says it. He says it on so many occasions. Your faith has healed you. What faith? The faith that Jesus can subtract everything that needs to be subtracted and add everything that needs to be added. Yes, I believe that. Yes, I believe that you can remove all of the shame, all of the curse, all of the sadness and the story of separation and loss. You can remove that, Jesus. And you can add to my life so much more because there is a cross and a resurrection. Because there's a cross and a resurrection. Listen to me, fellow evangelicals. We spend so much time in subtraction that we barely give any attention to addition. What do you want Jesus to do for you? The subtraction is already done. It's already been achieved. And yes, he will always hear the cry for mercy. Lord, take this away. Yes, says Jesus. Because it's, it's built on what I've done already. But his question to you today is what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to add to you? What if... I've already brought you near. What if 
I've already called your name. What if I've already established a relationship with you and you can touch me? What if, like the blind man, I've brought you from the edge to the center by the work of my blood on the cross? What if I've already done that? What now? What do you want that's more than that? What do you want Jesus to do for you today? And of course, the man's heart, filled by the words of Jesus, produced faith, because faith comes by hearing. And as he heard the words of Jesus, faith was born in his heart. Jesus is ready to give, not just take away. And so he asks for the one thing that no one else can give him. And everything changes. Peter did not say, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and everything's going to be awesome from now on. He didn't say that. He said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this is a promise for you and your children. What do you want Jesus to do for you today? Don't live a life of subtraction alone. It's good that Jesus subtracts from our life, but he wants to add to it as well. So as we pray, as we respond online or in-house, I want you to turn your hearts towards him. And when we come to the place where you're asking for Jesus to add, I want you to stand up. Why? At home? Sure. Do people think you're weird? Probably. Because something has to happen to release the faith in your heart that Jesus wants to add something to you. And God gave you not just a brain, but a body. So let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you, by your work on the cross, are able to remove from us the curse of sin and the scourge of guilt. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're able to separate us from our past and give us a future. We thank you, Lord, that you're always in the business of subtraction, but not in subtraction alone. So, Lord, even as we've heard you speak to our hearts this day,
We've heard your word and it's caused a mustard seed of faith in our hearts. Lord, as we stand right now, we want to say to you from our heart to yours what we want you to add to our life. What do you want him to add to your life today? Tell him. Tell him right now. Tell him at home. Tell him here. Whisper it. Shout it. Declare it. Whatever you want. Lord, add to our lives the things that we cannot add. Add to our lives, Lord, the reality that we can never experience. Holy Spirit, thank you for the gift that you are, a promise to us and to our children. Lord, we thank you for forgiveness, but we pray for more. We thank you, Lord, that there is a resurrection as well as a cross. And we pray this day, Lord, that you would add to our life the story of the resurrection. A life filled with your presence. And we pray it, Jesus, in your good name. And all God's people say,